Daniel chapter 4. This morning I want to talk to you uh, about an important topic, I think, called The Beast of Sin and the Hammer of the Law. Now, that's a, maybe a weird title, but we're gonna, it'll make sense to you as we go on. But I think, um, to start out with, I just want to say this, that you know, we're in the midst of, you could say, sort of a renaissance of Disney films. And what's the most common ending of every single Disney film ever known? Maybe you don't know this. Happily ever after, right? It's not just Disney films. It's all of our classic fairy tales. They all end with a script that says, Happily ever after, the prince and the princess have gotten married and everything is resolved. The bad guy is killed. Everything is resolved. The good has won. Happily ever after, right? I think we all uh, long for happily ever afters, these sort of romanticized or sort of rose-colored endings um, uh, in our own lives. We long for this in our own lives. We all want sort of a, a happy ending to our otherwise troubled lives. That we, have, we go through trials, we go through tribulations, and we all want those wrongs to eventually be made right. And we crave for that day when our, our lives that are broken will be remade again. In fact, you could say that we are all longing for the same thing. It's called resolution. We want things to be made right again. And this is true even if you don't believe in God. People who uh, don't believe that Jesus is their Savior are still craving for a, quote, happy ending to their lives. They're just seeking it in the wrong ways. They're seeking it through money or through pleasure or through fame or whatever, but they're filling the void of a happy ending with something that will never bring it about. And I believe, too, that these, uh, these cravings after happily ever afters are sort of uh, inescapable signs of the fall. The fall in Genesis chapter 3 shows us that the happily ever after that we wanted, we just rejected and now we're trying to get back to that. We're trying to get back to that sort of happily ever after. And I think all these cravings after are just uh, further exposes us as a people who are desperate. We're crying for relief and for redemption. If you turn to, you can stay in Daniel 4, but if you flip back one chapter, Daniel chapter 3, it appears as though we get such a happy ending at the end of Daniel chapter 3. If you know your Bible, you know that Daniel chapter 3 is, of course, the retelling of Nebuchadnezzar's golden image in fiery furnace. Of course, which he threw uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that furnace for their denial of his deity, but also for their allegiance to Jehovah, to God. And their miraculous deliverance, if you know the story, they were delivered from that furnace. And I love when it says in Daniel chapter 3 that they were delivered from this fiery furnace without even the smell of smoke on them. <laughs> so it's a true miracle. It had an enormous effect on King Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And with Nebuchadnezzar promoting the very men that he had condemned to death. If you bear with me, just look at verse 30 of Daniel 3. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. He promoted them to sort of be governors, so to speak, in that kingdom. But stopping at the end of Daniel 3 doesn't give us the full picture. It doesn't give us the full story. Because, you see, Nebuchadnezzar was a prideful man. 
You know that if you know the stories and you hear, read your history books, he was a very prideful man, boastful, supremely sort of impressed with himself and his own sort of fabricated glory, you might say. He deemed himself a god. He had such a high view of himself that he thought he was a god. And so that's why in Daniel 3, we have the story of him fashioning an image in himself, in his likeness, so to speak, so that all the nations, as it says in Daniel 3, verse 5, that all the nations could worship this golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had made. So he wanted everyone to see that he was God, he was the high and mighty one, and he was the one that should be worshipped. He was a boastful man who seemingly surrounded himself with other sort of, you know, that, the, the phrase yes men, the people that would just keep feeding into his ego. He was surrounded by people that just would fuel his pride. And it's not hard to imagine then, if you remember the story of Daniel 3, how furious he must have been when three Hebrew captives come up to him and disobey him. This man redeems himself with God, and these three pathetic Hebrew captives are now saying, You're not God? I can't imagine how furious he was. Because these Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't, they're not just um, disobeying his ordinances. They are actually denying his deity, his supposed deity. It's an affront to him. How dare you deny my deity? This king was filled with rage. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the form of his visions was changed against, changed against them. His threats didn't work. He gave them a second chance in verses prior. He said, "If you Okay, you didn't bow down the first time. If you bow down now, I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm not going to kill you. I'll give you another chance. But if you don't, I mean, I'm still going to have to throw you in the fiery furnace. And they don't bow down. They don't give in to his threats. And he was forced to live up to his word. To reassert his power and his dominance. But as we know, the story, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are rescued from this furnace. And it caught everyone by surprise. Look at verse 24. Then... Or look, let's go back to verse 23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the fi burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished. He's astonished. He's alarmed. He is amazed at the fact uh, that these men, he sees them and look at it. says, and he rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound to the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking into the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Amen. God was with them in those flames, and he delivered them out of those flames. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who deemed himself a god, saw God work a miracle right in front of his eyes. He saw it right before him. And his faith, though, wasn't stirred up by this event. That's the sad part about the story, that his faith wasn't stoked by the miracle of the furnace. Because look at verses 28 and 29. Then King Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be, notice this phrasing, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree that every people and nation and language which speak anything against amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other god that can deliver after this sort. Now, if you read that just off the surface, it appears that he is acknowledging Jehovah. But actually he's not. Because did you notice those phrases? He mentions it twice. The god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's not claiming God. He's not saying, I believe in God now. I've seen that this amazing thing has just happened in front of my eyes. No, he's saying, it's not my God. It's still theirs. I'm just going to add it to the list of other gods I worship. He's just adding Jehovah to the long list of his gods. He's not ascribing any sort of worth to Jehovah beyond the fact that he can deliver people out of fire. <laughs> he's not his, it's not his God. It's still theirs. And so that's a long way of coming around to Daniel chapter 4. Because Daniel chapter 4, we still have the matter of Nebuchadnezzar's unresolved conversion. He's been given two pristine opportunities to bow himself and humble himself before God. Just what we went through in Daniel chapter 3. And you could go back to Daniel chapter 2 and you can find the same thing with his troubling dream. And in both instances, he is stirred to the very core of his being, and yet he does not believe. He doesn't believe. He doesn't humble himself. He remains, you could say, enthroned on the throne of his heart. Entrenched, you could say, also as the master of his fate, as the captain of his life. And despite ample opportunity to humble himself, Nebuchadnezzar still remains the king of his personal domain. And this is what makes chapter 4 supremely intriguing and interesting to me because it is written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. Nebuchadnezzar wrote Daniel chapter 4 and it's essentially a retelling and it's a testimony of the years after these events, the, the life after these events in Daniel 3. It's been written and preserved and included in Scripture as it says in verse... Well, look at verse 2. Well, we'll just read verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king... Unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. So he is now telling you, this is why it's here, because I've learned this. And how has he learned this? Well, through some pretty remarkable events in his life. And what I hope to show you that this morning, that this very testimony gives us a very clear view of both the devastation of God's law, but also the deliverance of God's gospel. And we'll see this in three truths that I'd like to share with you regarding what I like to call the beast of sin, which is pride itself. The first point I want to make to you is that, it's, that pride blinds us. Pride blinds us. Pride never believes in reality. It always believes in a delusion of life. It always believes in something that's false. And that's what you build your life upon if you believe in your own uh, ego, so to speak. 
And we see this at the beginning of chapter 4, where we read of another troubling dream that has come upon the king. He's afflicted by this, and he can't find rest from this terrible dream. Look at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. And this, his mind is, is struck by this dream, and, and it's very reminiscent of chapter 2. And, and the king's ma- magicians now are called. His astrologers, his, his, quote, wise men are come, and they're trying to interpret the dream. And look at verse 6. Therefore, I made a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. So they couldn't do it. They come in, these quote-unquote wise men are coming in and they're stumped. They have no idea what to make of this dream. And that's when they remember again this guy named Belteshazzar, or you know him as Daniel, Belteshazzar is his Babylonian name, and he comes in. They remember this guy because he had done it before. He did it in chapter 2. He comes in, and he begins to hear this dream. Nebuchadnezzar begins to relate this dream to him. Verse 8, But at the last Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of mine head and my bed. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. And the tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. He cried and said thus, Hew down the tree. And cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it, and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots. And the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, and the the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him. And let seven times pass over him. So he interprets this dream. Nebuchadnezzar had seen this tree, this great tree, as it says, it grew up to the heavens. It's massive. I think of the tree down uh, back where we live uh, in West Palm Beach. If you go to the coast, you know, uh, the Flagler House, and you have that giant banyan tree. That's kind of what I imagine. Maybe you have banyan trees up here. I don't know. You probably do. Anyways, banyan tree, there's this giant one. It's huge. It's massive. I imagine something like that. It's reaching to the heavens. It's a glorious tree in which birds come and cattle come and they find shelter. They find rest. They find meat there. It says they feed off of it. It is a glorious tree, majestic. 
It's sort of a sanctuary, you might say. But as stunning as this tree is in this dream, the troubling part is that it is not impervious to a blade, to seal, you might say. As this, this watchman, it says, this holy one comes down and he says, hew down this tree. And they cut it down to its stump, leaving nothing else but the stump of the tree. And this pillar of wood is cut down and is exposed now. All honor, all glory, all majesty is taken away. Everything that once made it uh, majestic is now gone. It's humbled and it's crushed and it's disgraced. It's troubling to this king. But it's also troubling to Daniel. He hears this and he's likewise troubled. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished. Notice that same word. For one hour, his thoughts troubled him. I think that Daniel knew the interpretation of the dream, but he was troubled. He, he was, was uh, perplexed, maybe, by the interpretation that he didn't want to deliver this bad news. <laughs> he didn't want to deliver the bad news, even though he knew he had to. And after much coaxing, he did. Verse 19, again, the king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretations thereof to thine enemies. He's saying it should be to them, but he's going to reveal something very startling. You see, this glorious tree that appeared so beautiful, so majestic, so powerful, was actually Nebuchadnezzar himself. It was a symbol for Nebuchadnezzar himself. And I'm reminded of the chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where Nathan calls out David for his sin, for his iniquity. And Nathan says to David, thou art the man. Look at what it says here. Look at verse 20. The tree that thou sawest, O king. And look at verse, uh, excuse me, look at verse 22. The king that thou sawest, it is thou, O king. Thou art the man. Thou art the tree. Wow. Look at verse 20. The tree that thou sawest which grew and was strong, whose height reached to the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and it was meat for all. Verse 22. It is thou, O king, that thou art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto the heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and an holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump, <clears throat> excuse me, and let it be wet, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field and seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. He's saying, It's you. You are the tree. You are the tree who is about to be cut down. You're about to have an amazing humiliation come your way. He was the tree. He was that pillar of wood, so to speak, that would soon be bankrupt of all sense of royalty. And he was going to be stripped of all sovereignty, all power. And he would soon feel the hammer of God's law. The hammer of God's humiliating law. And it would be swift. It would be quick. It wouldn't be drawn out. The one who thought himself godlike would soon become beast-like so that he might learn that he is merely human after all. <laughs> this guy who thought himself a god would become a beast. He would be humiliated. 
It says in verse 25, And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. (laughs) Daniel delivers this sobering news. He delivers it to Nebuchadnezzar with one caveat. I like that he gives this. He gives this at the end. Look at verse 27. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness and thy iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be lengthening of thy tranquility. He gives him a chance. He's saying, you don't have to be humiliated like this. You can humble yourself now, and you won't have to go through this. This dream won't come true. It won't come to pass. There is still grace available for you right now. But he doesn't. Once again, he's given another opportunity to humble himself, to come before God and realize that he's not God. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't believe. He once again ignored the warnings. And for a whole year, though, nothing happens. Look at verse 28. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace. And so 12 months go by. Nothing really happens. Nothing happens. Remarkable like this. He doesn't become a beast of the field in 12 months. In fact, you could say quite the opposite of humiliation happens. Uh, Everything is going well. Nebuchadnezzar is known for bringing Babylon to sort of the apex of world dominance during this time. This kingdom is thriving. It's flourishing. It's not diminishing. It's not going away. He is thriving, and all this expansion and ascension of this kingdom does nothing but bloat his already bloated pride. It only exceeds to increase his blindness, so to speak. And so one evening, verse 29 again, he's walking in his palace, and he's overlooking this glorious empire. And it says at the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. Look at verse 31. Or excuse me, verse 30. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? You notice what he's doing again? I'm bringing this kingdom to dominance and it's by my might and it's for my glory. It's for my ability. It's for my honor and my majesty. It's because of me. (laughs) He's ascribing it to himself. Once again, he had accomplished this. He had made this all come about. He was confident in his own might right here. And it's as if he was saying, look how great I am. I am a God. Once again, he had learned nothing. This troubling dream obviously didn't trouble him that much. (laughs) And I like what it says in verse 31. But look at verse 30 again. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of, thy, of my majesty? And look at what it says. While the word was in the king's mouth. It hadn't even left his mouth yet. The thought hadn't even constructed and formed words to come out of his mouth before everything that Daniel promised came true. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. While the word was still in his mouth, everything came true. Immediately the vision of this tree, this really this vision of himself came about. And he begins to eat grass like cattle. 
He begins to uh, uh, grow eagle's feathers, it says. Look at verse 31, uh, excuse me, 32. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee until uh, thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws." He becomes a beast. This once royal, this once noble king is now disgraced. He is naked and he is humiliated and he is driven away from all sense of humanity. Pride transforms this once noble ruler into a savage monster. And it's all, and it's been doing, I should say, the same thing ever since. You see, because pride blinds us. But also, number two, pride never ends well. As now Nebuchadnezzar just now learned, it never ends well. Pride never ends in flourishing. And I would also say that something similar like this is what happens when any one of us try to take God's throne. When we think that our ways are better than His, and when we think that we can do a better job than God can. Sometimes we think that. I, I think that. I can make a better God than God. I have more wisdom than God does. And it's at that time that God's hammer will strike me down and put me in my place. Pride is a devastation. And it's an isolation. Nebuchadnezzar was isolated out of humanity. He was isolated away from the kingdom and it devolves our senses and is a killer of relationships. All of King Nebuchadnezzar's relationships were killed. And it stunts all, sort of, all sorts of intimacy. Pride seeks its own glory at all costs. And is the beast of sin. And it always leads to self-deception. It is always based on a lie. And that lie is that we are sufficient, we are sovereign, and we are superior. We can make God, so I can be a God. That's what pride is. It is a terrible folly that distorts and perverts every area of life. I like to say that pride is the root of all sin. The Bible says that money is the root of all evil, and pride is the root of all sin. Because, I mentioned Genesis 3 for a very specific reason. Because this fall from grace actually reminds me of another fall. The fall of Genesis chapter 3. If you know your Bibles, you know that chapter recounts the events of mankind's fall in the Garden of Eden. Mankind's terrible disobedience. Telling the story of how the sin came into the world in what I like to call an upward fall. What's an upward fall? Well, um, let me try and explain it to you like this because I can speak from lots of experience. <laughs> I was known, and my family who may listen to this later will uh, vouch for the fact that I was known for running upstairs so fast that I would trip. And they would hear me trip. I would run upstairs because I didn't want to miss whatever was going on upstairs. And they would hear, oh, and I would fall. And, hear, and I would groan up the stairs. I'd beat my shin on the stairs or something like that. I fell up the stairs constantly. <laughs> if you fall upstairs, though, <clears throat> you are usually met with some sort of laughter. <laughs> you just laughed at me and I just told you the story. <laughs> 
You see, your, you, your brain is conditioned to learn how to take stairs to where you don't have to think about it. You don't have to look, oh, oh I need to lift my leg up six inches to get this stair and then whatever. Your brain is, does that automatically, but if you go too fast, you don't give your brain enough time, and then you end up tripping up the stairs. And now you look like someone who is completely unathletic at all. But falling downstairs is excusable. You know, if someone falls downstairs, you don't laugh. Maybe you do, and if you do, that's kind of evil. But if, if someone falls downstairs... You are immediately rushing to help them because usually it ha results in a, some sort of injury and usually compassion is sort of kind of stirred up. But if you fall upstairs, there's no sort of compassion there. There might be humor, there might be disdain, there's most likely anyone uh, that sees you will either be laughing or trying to stifle laughter. <laughs> this is an upward fall. In a similar way, we have all fallen upward. We have stumbled up the stairs of heaven and we have face planted right into God's righteousness. We have face planted into the fact that we have no business being where God is despite the fact that Jesus Christ has come and made a way. This is what happens to our first parents in the garden. Let me explain it this way. God gave Adam and Eve a very specific command. They said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was under a penalty of death. That was in Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis 3, Eve is now tempted to eat of this fruit. She's tempted of the serpent. And she eats of this tree. With Adam soon following suit. I'm going to flip over to Genesis really quick and read a few verses. So Adam now eats of this tree. And now the whole world is plunged into sin. Plunged into darkness. Condemnation comes into the world. By eating this forbidden fruit, they had plunged humanity into disfavor. And where once they enjoyed a close intimacy with God, with Jehovah, now they were cut off. They felt the heat of His wrath, you could say. And where once they lived and breathed in flawless harmony with the Trinity, an infinite chasm now exists and precludes any fellowship. Look at verse 24. And so he, the angel, drove out the man. And he placed at the east of the, um, of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned, away every, uh, turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And so he was cut off. They were cut off from this garden. And where once was everything was declared very good in Genesis 1, now everything is warped. It's polluted. It's corrupted by sin. Look at verse 14. And the Lord said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed. Above all cattle and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And he goes on, and every part, every facet of life is now cursed because of sin. Adam and Eve yielded to the serpent's enticements. They yielded to that, and they allowed themselves to be manipulated by what he was offering. And was what's the picture of beauty is now a portrait of blasphemy. But where does the upward fall come in? Well, it's very important because this fall wasn't merely a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience of some sort of divine decree. Yes, they disobeyed. That was bad. But their true, I believe, disobedience stems from their insistence on being like God. Look at verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. 
For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. They were corrupted by the fact that they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be as gods. They weren't satisfied with what God was giving them. Our first parents were deceived by the thought that, that, that God the Father was sort of harboring some sort of secret away from them. And they doubted that God was good. And they thought that he was keeping something from them. And they weren't seduced by some sort of gritty thing, by some sort of grimy, disgusting thing. They were deceived by the glitz and the glamour of deity. That you can be like God. The serpent deceived them. And the temptation wasn't to come down to some sort of lower level. It was to ascend to some sort of high level. You can be just as God is. And the suggestion of being like God sounded way too good to them. They couldn't pass that up. I want to be a God. It sounded really good to their ears. And so they ate of the fruit. And so they fell upwards. They fell upwards into the realm of heaven, a realm where only God deserved to be enthroned. And they were given everything they needed. Into their hands they were placed the pledge of divinity. He was, they were made in God's likeness, but all they ended up with was depravity. And with paradise in their hands, they gave it up for the hope of being like God. And that only ended up leaving them with nothing but emptiness. And that's the essence of sin, though. Right here, we are given the essence of every sin that comes after it. It's a nothing but a, a disbelief in God's goodness and a fabrication of your own. I can make my own goodness. I can be my own God. I don't need you to control me. That's what sin is. A distrust in the fact that God is good. And this man really substituting himself for God. Just as Adam and Eve did here, we've been doing ever since. Every single time that we take something that we shouldn't, we are substituting ourselves for God in that moment that, and saying that this is going to make me supremely happy, even though it doesn't. Sinful man takes upon himself the mission of finding all the peace and the hope and the, and the, and the life and the meaning that he craves. He takes that upon himself. And ever since Adam and Eve's fall, we've all sought to reclaim that peace that we once enjoyed through a million and one different avenues. And all those million and one different avenues end, only end up leaving us empty. Sin has us looking for eternity among things that are temporal. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that God has put eternity in our hearts. Now, an eternity-sized hole in our heart can only be filled by what? Something that's eternal. <laughs> you can't find it, but you can't find something to fill that eternal hole by looking for it on the things on this earth. You can only find it by looking for something that's eternal, i.e. God himself. Pride causes you to carry this burden on yourself. It causes you to say, I can do it, I can bear it. But pride, as Proverbs says all over the place, it is an abomination to God. It's an attempted invasion of God's rightful place as the ruler of your life, as the sovereign of your life. And by claiming that we don't need God, we are saying we are gods. And that's where we get our upward rebellion. 
It's a rebellion into God's territory. And just coming back now, circling all the way back to Daniel 4, like Nebuchadnezzar, we're often tempted to take stock of our lives and determine that we are responsible for them. Look at the job that we have. Look at the money that we're making. Look at the wife that I have, the family that I've been blessed with. Look at this house that I live in. And we think, look at all these things that I've built for myself. Look at the car I drive. Look at the phone I have. Look at the watch I wear. Look at the clothes that are in my closet. (laughs) I make good God, don't I? And so it is that we continue this sort of invasion of God's rightful place as the ruler of our life, and we give in to that beast of sin, pride. But just like the king of Babylon, we have to know, you have to know, that your, your humiliation is never that far away. Your humiliation is never that far off, and God won't stand by and let ruinous man rob him of his glory. He won't let you take that away from him. As sinners, we are thieves that try and steal God's glory, steal God's honor. And in so doing, God's hammer will come upon us. And for Adam and Eve, that hammer of the law meant exile. It meant complete cutoff from God's fellowship. And for the king of Babylon, it meant that he was turned into a wretched monster with feathers and long hair and eating grass. (laughs) For us, I don't think we're going to turn into some cow. But the hammer of God's law takes a lot of different forms. And there's no question, though, that He will humble us. Maybe you will lose a job. Maybe you will lose a loved one. God forbid, maybe you will lose a child. Maybe you will lose something that's very precious to you. God will cut you down. God will make sure that, as it says in verse 37, that those in pride he is able to abase. He will bring the hammer of his law and it will be swift. But even there we can find hope. You know why? Because of this. Not only does pride blind us and not only is pride uh, never ending well, but just this. Pride's end is never the end. Because just like this story where Daniel gives the king a chance to repent, there's always a chance for you to humble yourself. The hope of this story is the hope of the gospel. It's seen in the king himself lifting up his eyes towards heaven. Look at verse 34. Excuse me. And at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and the brightness returned unto me. And my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. You notice how different his language is? at the end of Daniel chapter 3 than here? 
It's not the God of them. It's my God. The king that liveth forever. See, the beauty of the story is that Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself in the eyes of God. And he realized once and for all, through a long course of life, that he wasn't sovereign. (laughs) He wasn't a God. He was just a mere man. And from being a persecutor of those that were faithful to God, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a witness to this very same faith. And this is undoubtedly, excuse me, a testament to what one writer calls God's violent mercy. Listen to this. It says, In love, God has worked to dent and deface my glory so that his glory would be my delight. And he has plundered my personal kingdom so that his kingdom would be my joy. And he has crushed my crown under his feet so that I would quest to be a good ambassador and not crave to be a king. In this, in this violent mercy, there is hope for every person. See, even in the crushing weight of this hammer of the law, even this crushing weight of this humiliation, we have God's mercy. He is merciful to us. That he's not cutting us off completely. He's giving us a chance to see him for who he really is. God's law is this violent mercy is acting as sort of a divine sort of lumberjack that cuts down the pillars of our pride and is humbled, and we are humbled now, and shown that God offers a better way. You see, where sin is man substituting himself for God, salvation is God substituting himself for man. And while the nature of sin is us laying claim to God's world, I can be like God. I have sovereignty. The nature of the gospel is the opposite. It's God invading your world. It's an invasion. The assurance of redemption is the fact that life comes to you. He who is life, he who is the word of the Father comes to you. Instead of wasting our days eternally trying to win and strive and earn and work for our life in our pride, God offers us rest. And the fact that he has made a way for us. You see, just the very opposite. The way that we seek to promote ourselves and to exalt ourselves and to say that I am a God, Christ humbles himself. (laughs) Remember in Philippians chapter 2, it says that he humbles himself, that he thought it not robbery to be equal with the Father. And he humbled himself as a man and became obedient unto the Father. And where Adam... In Genesis 3, ventured into the things above, into the things heavenly, and brought only death. Christ ventures into the things below, and he brings out life. The gospel tells us that the Son takes our um, embarrassing uh, upward fall and turns it into a showcase that he comes down to us. Into a showcase that he condescends to our low estate. God the Father sees us in ruins And he doesn't leave us there. See, the the amazing thing about God the Father is that he sees us fall up the stairs of heaven and he doesn't laugh at us. (laughs) He has mercy on us. He has compassion on us. Yes, we have fallen up the stairs of heaven. But instead of roars of laughter ringing in our ears as we try and pick ourselves up, you know what we hear? We hear Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all who have fallen And I would like to say, all who have fallen up the stairs of heaven, and I will give you rest. I will help you up again. God humbles us in order to make us his sons and daughters. 
our Father devastates us in order to deliver us. And God's not finished with you yet. Your humiliation might be afar off, or you might be coming through it right now. Regardless of where you are, no one can measure the grace and the patience of God the Father. Maybe even now he is waiting for you to feel the weight of his loss so that he might relieve you of that burden by his gospel. He's saying, if you just humble yourself before me, I will give you rest. I will give you relief because I have a better way. <laughs> There's the way to life abundant, as Jesus says. Let's pray.